Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, is AI taking over the world? To help address that question, we welcome guest Jeff Zwerink, who's familiar to anyone who's been connected to RTB for any length of time. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, Joe. Thanks. appreciate the opportunity to be on the show today. All right. Uh, Ken, this topic is, uh, both of you guys, this topic is always out there in the news. And uh, people probably think they have a good idea what AI is, but we've got Jeff here to get us off on the right foot to explain the nuts and bolts, what exactly AI is, and we'll get into other uh, topics as well. Yeah, I have uh, been talking with Jeff about this topic for a long period of time, and he has worked on a book. And so we wanted to bring him on and try to ask questions that'll be of real interest to our listeners. So Jeff, welcome to Clear Thinking. It's always good to have you. Thanks, Ken. Like I said, I'm looking forward to our conversation and always enjoy talking with uh, you in particular, because you always come and ask questions. Whatever I'm thinking, you kind of come at it at a different angle. So I'm looking forward to what plays out today. Well, very good. Maybe we could start by talking about what what actually is artificial intelligence. So the best I would describe it, it's like we're the the idea behind it is, okay, as humans, we think and we're intelligent. And so can we replicate or do that? in some other medium. So not just having biological babies, but can we do something else? Now, at least for me, for the bulk of the time, whenever I've thought about artificial intelligence, my mind kind of goes to, you know, C3PO and RTD2 or maybe vision or, you know, uh, data, depending on what sort what sort of uh, universe you want to live in there or science fiction universe you want to live in. And, but it has that idea of a sentient being that's alive, aware of itself. I mean, you know, I just think back to all of the movies that came out, you got Bicentennial Man and Short Circuit and they're just littered with these machines that somehow became, hey, I'm aware of themselves and the the either the seriousness or the hilarity that ensued after that. But what I've found is that AI, as it's talked about today, that's one class of AI and for in the just some kind of helpful nomenclature in my opinion, that's kind of the artificial general intelligence. That's the intelligence that can think, it can take knowledge in one area, apply it in other areas. Really it is kind of human-like, if you will, or it has human behaviors, whether it is human intelligence or not, it's it's in that class of, this is kind of like humans, only a little different. But what's different from that is that a lot of the AI that we're dealing with today is not so much that general intelligence, but it's a narrow intelligence. So it's a AI or an intelligence that can play chess or that can tell whether your refrigerator is empty and needs to order and can call a supermarket or it can play poker or it can scan images and look for certain pathologies or it can generate language or uh, a text that looks like human produced text so it's it's this narrow intelligence that's designed to do a specific thing and beyond that the computer, the program has absolutely almost no functionality beyond that. So it's that very narrow intelligence, which is very different than the way humans approach thinking about things. 
Now, one of the things that I've always been curious about, and I think I'm kind of influenced by one of the Christian thinkers that I have a high regard for, Mortimer Adler. Uh, Adler, who was a philosopher by training, he would often compare the human cognitive abilities with both uh, the animal kingdom on one hand and the machines on the other. Um, I don't think machines think if you define thinking the way we define thinking for human beings. What, what's your thought about that? It, do machines really think in the way in which humans think? What, what's your take? That's a great question because it really kind of gets at the, to me, one of the big distinctions between the narrow intelligence and the general intelligence is that, the, so the narrow intelligence, you know, let's kind of start with the, what for a long time was the prototypical, if we can do this, then we've got intelligence. And that was play chess. And those early chess programs, you know, the one or the ones that where they are actually playing at a human level. What's interesting about those is that the programmers are going in and saying, all right, there, there's a way you play chess and there's a there's an opening, uh, there's a mid game and then there's an end game to it. And so they would design their programs and build hardware so that it could uh, do an analysis of the opening and do an analysis of the, the mid game and then the end game. And it would it's very much taking human reason or humans have to think how to do it and then say, all right, here's the algorithm that kind of replicates or reproduces what we do. And can we build a machine that will do that? So there's no real sense where as a human, if I go play chess and I'm, you know, reasonable, not, not grandmaster, nowhere near, I don't even know how far up on the rated, but you know, I played enough that I was fairly decent. You know, I would go look, I would look at the chess board. I would try and analyze where's my next move. What am I going to do here? Uh, kind of even began to try and imagine what's my opponent. And I could actually adjust the way I played, depending on if I'm playing a two-year-old or you know, my kid, I would play differently than if I were playing my brother, who I lost all the time to when I was a kid and I would want to win. You know, there was just a different intensity. So there's a whole emotional, psychological almost random, not randomness, non-rational aspect to the way I played. Whereas the computers, they're playing chess. They're they're figuring out their strategy or here's the best moves. They're thinking so deep in their scale. Thinking, and I'm going to use that term in quotes because it's just, it's, it's this algorithm about how to evaluate what are good moves and what are bad moves. And what I see in the AIs are they're taking that algorithm part and they can reproduce that well but I think there's more to human thinking than just an algorithm. But all the AI is at this point is just an algorithm. Now, now somebody like J.P. Moreland, who's a philosopher of mind, he says that he thinks uh, machines mimic human thinking. Do you do you subscribe to that position as well? That is actually the position I've come down to is that as I've looked at the various AIs that are out there, you know, we say, okay, we want to do this task. And then they, you know, people, very ingenious ways of doing it. They say, you know, do we use a lot of data? Do we use this hardware? How do, I mean, it's, it's ingenious in the way they do things. But at the end of the day, what they're doing is saying, this is what we do as humans. This is the outcome we get. How can we get that same sort of outcome? 
And so, you know, there, there's an aspect to the way an AI plays chess that is akin to the way humans play chess, but that's because there's moves and there's strategy and there's better and worse. And so there, there's algorithms for figuring that out. And so everything I do as a human has an algorithm to it, but nothing I do is just an algorithm. And so the, the AI is doing the algorithms well, but it's not doing what I do when I play, or at least everything that I do when I play. Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you for a couple questions. Yeah, uh, Jeff, it seems to me that uh, the rise of artificial intelligence is concurrent with uh, the computer age. Uh, you can respond to that and say yes or no. But uh, since you're mentioning movies earlier, one of the earliest movies I remember is uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Mm. And I think that came out in the late 60s, guys, if I'm not mistaken. It was, it was a long time ago. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember seeing the first version of it. I saw it later. But anyway, is that true? And if so, uh, what does that say about technology and uh, you know, what kind of take we should have as Christians on technological development? I do think you're right that the, the the push for AI started with the computers. Cause I mean, apart from that, it's like, what other medium are we going to use? There's no medium that's out there where we can do something that's algorithmic or that is, you know, some set kind of set it up and let it run where, where we can actually have input into what it goes into program it. And so without computers, I don't see how you're talking about artificial intelligence. I mean, maybe you could talk about, you know, Frankenstein, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, all that being some sort of artificial intelligence, but that that's not, I, I, to me, that's just a different, that's a different class of looking at the way humans are, if you will. So I think you're right. It does kind of correspond with the computer age. Um, and it does seem to be very popular. I mean, you know, 2001 predates me a little bit, so it's probably got to be in the sixties when it came out. But I mean, you know, one of the earliest movies I remember seeing was Star Wars and you've got AIs that are in Star Wars. And so it does seem to be there. There kind of mirrors this what we can do in the media, what we or what we can do with our uh, entertainment movie, that that sort of stuff. And computers, they kind of gel together there well to have a lot of discussion about AI. So it does it does kind of parallel the development of those two media. Yeah. And then the other question was, you know, RTV is always uh, on the cutting edge of, you know, scientific discovery. And you guys, you science scholars are really pro-science, pro-technology. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you might have a comment on the development of technology just to get it out there and whether there should be some, some checks in there. Uh, what are the guiding principles that we might have? I know that's kind of a big question, but you're the guy to ask. <laughs> well, and that's, I think that to me is at the heart of, in my thinking about AI, because, you know, when I first started, I asked, okay, why did I get interested in AI? Well I, well, I like computer programming. I do quite a bit of it. And so there's kind of that natural connection. Okay, AI, that has science, faith, apologetic connections. And so that's what got me interested in it. But as if I'm honest, as I look through a lot of the apologetics that I do, it's like, okay, what does scripture say? what can science weigh in on whether what scripture says matches reality or not? And to the extent that's a great, that those are good apologetic arguments to develop. But as I look at scripture, I just don't find a lot where it talks about AI. Um, 
you know, the the place where it the 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 most direct statement or the place where it connects is can we actually produce something that is sentient conscience? You know, it's related to the image of God and humanity and how has God created us and has he given us that capacity to create? I think that's an interesting way to look at it, but I don't see that being predictive of, well, if God's created in this image, therefore we can create AI or therefore we can't create AI. I could see that going either way. But as I began to think about it, it's like, you know, though scripture doesn't say a lot about technology or anything related to AI specifically, it did just occur to me that AI is going to be a pretty powerful tool that we have. Uh, you know, I mean, when I look at scripture, I don't ask, well, what does it say about hammers? Well, we're going to create technology. Uh, you know, you can either use the hammer, you can use the hammer to build stuff that you couldn't before, or you can use the hammer for destructive purposes. That it's really, that technology question is really more a question in my assessment of about who are we as humans and what are we going to do with it? And so that's what I've been wrestling with is are kind of asking the question, are we as humans mature enough or responsible enough or have enough character that we're going to use this well because it's it's a really powerful tool. If I put my car in the hands of my five-year-old, I'm pretty much going to expect destruction out of that. I'm not going to expect good things. Put put the car in my 30-year-old, I can expect I, I'm more likely to expect good things there because that person now has the ability to use the tool well and make good choices. So that, that's kind of my thinking about AI. Not so much is it good or bad, but how are we going to use it? Let me ask a question here. Um, I I wonder why this topic is so engaging and gripping. I mean, not only have there been movies about it, uh, but uh, I many of the scientists I've met over the last few years, they're very interested in this topic. What what is it about artificial intelligence that makes this such a, you know, a, a, a gripping topic? Why is it prevalent in, in your mind, Jeff? I think one of the big reasons is that it gets at the heart of who are we as humans? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you, you've probably talked many times about, you know, what, what makes humans, what's our place here in the earth? You know, could, the reason why we're interested in going out and exploring galaxies and quasars and quarks and neutrinos, these things that seemingly have no real relevance to the way we live day to day, or we just kind of have this incessant question of who are we, what's our place in the cosmos? Uh, the more we know about galaxies and stars and how the universe developed, that helps us understand our place. I think it's the same question about AI. It's like, if we can build something that is human-like, what's how does what does that say about who we are? Can we do that? Wouldn't that be kind of cool if we do? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I think it's really related to, as being made in God's image, we're aware that we have a place in a bigger picture and AI allows us to explore what is that bigger picture? What is our place in that bigger picture? Who are we? Are we special? If we create other things that are intelligent, what is that? How does that impact us? I think that's it's the kind of who are we and what's our role and what's our, what's our place in this in this creation? 
Joe, I think I cut you off, so I'm going to give it back to you. No, oh, no, that's okay. Uh, Jeff, a very practical question for people who uh, might wonder, will AI replace my, my job? Uh, and it may not even be a, a white-collar job. could be blue-collar. Uh, I wonder if you could speak into that topic. Will AI develop to the point where people are going to be losing their jobs left and right? I think that's a complicated question. And I think it's inevitable that AI will eliminate jo some jobs. I, I just don't see any way around that. It's, you know, we see that in uh, almost every sector. I mean, you know, you've got go to a fast food restaurant and more times than not, you're interacting with a kiosk rather than a person because the kiosk is cheaper to maintain than it is to pay people. And, you know, there, there's a whole slew of issues you have to deal with with people, whereas the kiosk, it just like it just does things fairly regularly. I think there are jobs that AIs are going to be able to just do better than humans, uh, you know, and, and things that are going to benefit humanity. One of the things that AIs uh, do are image recognition. And so you could, uh, one of the technologies they're developing is, you know, you take x-rays or CT scans or MRIs, whatever the scans are, and you're looking for pathologies there. And as humans, we've kind of learned how to find, okay, these are pathologies. Well, these are the sorts of things that, you know, a human on a bad day might just be busy, might miss something, might've seen a bunch of stuff and is just, uh, you know, overly distracted. Yeah, there's all sorts of things that could play there. Whereas if you can develop an AI to look at those images and extract the pathologies, typically they're going to do it better than humans and they don't ever get tired. They don't ever have a bad day. They don't ever miss something. And even more than that, if the better they get, you can actually centralize that. So instead of having one doctor who has to look at all of these, you could have one really adept AI that just can find any sort of pathology on an MRI and it's just a matter of how many images can you bring from around the world, shove it through that and get the information back. And you're going to be able to provide better healthcare because of that. Now, that's going to affect the healthcare industry because there are now people who used to do that, that the AI will do it better than the people can do it. And that's going to be across the spectrum. Now, the question is, what are we going to do as people? Are we just going to say, well, some jobs are gone. People are going to have to adjust. I have this suspicion that with AI, that may be such a revolutionary change that we could very easily eliminate productive work from a lot of people that makes it really hard for them to have a productive job. And so what are we going to do with that? Again, are we going to use this to develop people or are we just going to do it because it's economically better? So these, these are the sorts of questions that it's not a either or. It's like, are we going to use this well or are we going to do some things that are beneficial for me, but might end up hurting other people. These are the questions we've got to learn to ask. Yeah. Now, some people propose, Jeff, that, um, you know, if we have these self-driving cars, that maybe the workforce would shift to maintenancing the cars. Or, uh, you know, I think back, I was just yesterday, I was thinking, wow, it's 2023. What was like, what was life like in 1923? Well, my dad was five years old and, you know, he made his living repairing automobiles, which largely just kind of appeared when he was a young man. Hmm. Um, but but I want to ask you, uh, I, I want to get to the 
the the question about danger and those issues. But I want to follow up with another question about Joe's question about technology. Um, sometimes I wonder whether technology has a tendency to kind of uh, limit our humanity or maybe take away our humanity. And that, let me let me give you an example or two. You know, some people some people say that they handle their cell phone two or three hundred times a day. Mm -hmm. um, I know when I'm writing a book um, or, you know, sometimes just entertainment, I'm preoccupied with screens. I remember going to a Laker game and it hit me that I was watching the Jumbotron and I wasn't watching the actual Lakers playing. And I thought, <laughs> something's wrong with this. Um, C.S. Yep. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien spoke that way, that technology, they thought, kind of maybe took away our humanity. Do you have any concerns along that? I know you, unlike me, you're very much a techie person. Uh, but do you see any do you see any concerns about that or issues about that issue? I do. And and I I kind of have I'm a little bit have two two sides that weigh in on that. One is that I mean, there's just a whole lot of what I do that if I if I took, oh, technology's bad, we can't. Most of my job just doesn't exist. I can't do gamma ray astronomy without computers because computers allow the processing power required to do the data analysis and to do the simulations. So it just, in a very real sense, the technology has enabled the job that I'm doing. And so I, I think there are really good things about that. Uh, but on the flip side, I also have, have learned to see that Technology isn't just a, a, a neutral or a good. It, it, it's, it, it has a good and a bad that can come out of every one. And I think your, your issue with cell phones is a great example because with cell phones used to be, and I remember traveling, you know, you'd have to, okay, where are you going to be? How are you going to get a hold of me? Uh, you know, we, I went out to uh, Promise Keepers, kind of dating things a little bit back in uh, early 19 or mid 1990s, late 1990s. And had to meet up with some people and we we're trying to figure out, you know, out on the, the nation's capital, how are we going to meet up? And you had to coordinate and get all that worked out. Well, now, oh, yeah, we'll meet in D.C. Just give me a call when you get there. And when we both get there, oh, yeah, I'm here. It's like this. That's a kind of a trivial example. But, you know, something goes wrong. Uh, you know, not too long ago, my daughter had an injury and she was able to call me right away. I mean, there's just there's benefits that flow out of the technology you can you know, have a Bible on your phone so that it's anywhere you can reach people across the world. There's so many good things you can do out of that. But on the on the same in the same measure, that technology has now allowed us to be focused on our screens. Where when you get an email or when you get a text or when you get a like, it's like, oh, I got to see what's going on there. And now you're you're drawn to your screen because it's giving you a chemical response that you find favorable and that often that dr drivenness or that attraction can take you away from the relationships. And so to me, that's, that's the question to ask. It's not, is technology good or bad? Cause yeah, I can see good things. I can see bad things, but I think, you know, and, and one of the things I think we ought to ask out of technology, is this going to help our relationships or is it going to diminish our relationships? 
you know, one can argue with Facebook. Yeah, I'm connected with a lot of relationships. There's people that I couldn't connect with before. But am I am I am I spreading my relational capital over more people so I have a whole lot more shallow relationships instead of at the expense of having those deeper, more intimate relationships that we're designed for. And so, again, I don't think it's an either or. It's like, what are we going to do with this? And are we going to use it to do to build relationships to help people? Or are we just going to say, well, let's go at it. It's We'll figure it out. I think we're going to have a lot of damage if we take that kind of approach. Yeah. Uh, a couple more questions here, Jeff. Uh, what is a deep fake and what should we know about that? So a deep fake, it's kind of the modern day equivalent of Photoshop. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're all at least old enough here that we know what Photoshop was. It used to be that if you saw a picture, that was something that was something you could trust. Uh, and now you can take a picture and in fact, we call it photoshopping, where you take a picture and you change it to make it look something else. You know it's not real. A Photoshop picture is something that somebody's altered to make it unreal in some fashion. Well, the next level of that is if I see a video of something now, okay, again, I've seen that's what actually happened. Well, we now have the technology that with stuff I can find on the internet, I could go out, find a picture of Hugh Ross, get a voice recording of him talking about how the earth is billions of years old, and that provides good evidence to sort the strength of Christianity and make it just take what he said and his, his images that are out there. And there's AI technology that allows me to take that footage and make a video where Hugh's saying, you know, after further study, I've come to the conclusion that the earth is indeed only 6,000 years old. And everything <laughs> I have done in the past 40 years has been a mistake. <laughs> and the technology is getting good enough to where you can't look at it and tell the difference. And it may, it's not quite there yet, but the way the AI works is that it's got a video generating module and a falsity detecting module and they compete against each other and so the better we get at making them the better we can make the the light or the the false detection but the better we get at that the better we can make the videos and so it's going to inevitably get to the place where you can make videos like that that's what's a that's called a deep fake it's kind of the the video equivalent of photoshopping yeah no, fascinating I'm... and frightening at the same time. Uh, that is uh, second... a very good way of saying it, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> second question, uh, and Ken, you can weigh in on this as well. Um, Jeff, you wrote a, a blog a while back, and I'm trying to remember the, the title of it, but essentially it was it was about whether AI is sentient. Um, you had a, a Google engineer who uh, hmm. developed, a, 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 I don't know what you call it, program or whatever, but... Um, then he asked the question, are you a person? And the, the response was, yes, I am a person. And that's that's compelling to read. I, I imagine what it would be like to, to hear that. But uh, this is where I would think that the Christian faith comes in and says, we are the only image bearers. But I think people are fascinated and they might wonder, are is AI really sentient or will it be soon? That is really a place where I... I... If, I, if I'm honest, this is a place where I have the most concern about our ability to handle and use it well. Because 
if I read scripture correctly, and I, and I, I find great evidence for this, that, you know, you look at, you know, in Genesis 1-1, God said, let us create man in our image. And he created the male and female in his image. And I, and I've, I've, a number of years ago, that struck me that God said, let us create man in our image. And I know people talk about, well, he's talking to the angelic, right? But that fits very well with the idea that God in his nature is one God in three persons. That in his nature, he is relational. Well, what's more relational than I can talk with you and we can exchange ideas and we're now developing AI technology that looks like you're having a conversation and we're designed to relate to things. And so where we see that conversation, we're going to attribute human-like attributes to the, the being. And that that's kind of what happened with that uh, person. This uh, It was a fellow named Blake Lemoyne that worked for uh, Google and they were developing a uh, chat bot. Uh, it was called Lambda, if I remember the name of it correctly. And in his interacting with this chatbot, he became convinced that this chatbot was sentient. I think we are designed to be, especially since the chatbot is replicating or mimicking human interaction, not actually interacting like a human. We're particularly prone for that, that we can look and see this as you know, it's saying it's sentient. It's saying it's got pain. It seems to have angst over being turned off and dying. We're kind of wired to hear that and see, oh, this is the sort of thoughts that a, a being would have. But when you look at how chatbots work, they're not doing anything related to what humans are doing. And so it it's one of these areas where the, the technology has this peril and danger that it's going to introduce to humanity, but I don't think a lot of humans realize or have the defenses or the knowledge necessary to see. And, you know, part of it is related to what you're saying there, that God has created us in his image. We're designed for relationship. We need to be aware of how easily we'll attribute relational qualities to relationship or things where the, there aren't the relationships. Great. I remember watching uh, one of the news uh, magazine shows and they showed these dolls that they had been working on and they were creepy. I mean, it just, whoa, uh, they just seem so lifelike. Um, when mm -hmm. I was uh, working with Fuzz on the topic of transhumanism in the book uh, Humans 2.0, uh, I remember one of the leading transhumanists was a Oxford professor and he had written about what he thought were the potential dangers of artificial intelligence. And I later came to learn that people like uh, Bill Gates and others uh, kind of picked up on that and expressed some concern. What do you think about this, this uh, idea that artificial intelligence could reach a place where um, we could lose control over it and it could it could be potentially dangerous to to the human race. So there's a part of me that sees the validity of that concern. And there's a, a much larger part of me that is not at all concerned about that right now for this reason, that that kind of AI that we can lose control over, 
that needs to be that artificial general intelligence. It's got to have some way of thinking for itself, expanding into new realms, doing things, uh, you know, kind of uh, resp- seeing what humans are doing and and ma- being able to outmaneuver humans. That's the place where I would be concerned about that. But what we're talking about AI now is so far removed from that, that that's, that's decades, if not centuries off from, from what we're talking about. And so I do see that concern. I don't think we're anywhere near that concern right now. And this is the reason. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give a very specific example, just kind of going back to your previous question about these chatbots and, and interacting with them. When you and I talk, I have an idea. I formulate the idea in my head. I use words to express that idea. I say those words. You hear the words and you understand what I'm saying, that we're using the words to exchange ideas. The ideas are the fundamental. The words are the tools we're using to communicate those ideas. When an AI or a chatbot is interacting, it's doing something very different based on how it's trained, looking at all the literature and all the examples and everything, what an AI is doing is it's saying, all right, here's a string of input. And I'm not even gonna use words because the AI isn't thinking in terms of words. It's saying, here's a string of input. What's the the best output? And, and, And I'll now use it in terms of words. It's like, okay, what word would be the way to start this? And what's the next word? 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 You notice how what we're doing isn't at all contained in what it's doing. Even though the responses it gives, ChatGPT, BARD, all these other chatbot AIs, they're giving responses that look like they could be written by a human, but they're doing it in an entirely different way. And it's not even a sentient or cognizant way. It's really just mapping inputs to outputs. That's all it's doing. That's not the kind of AI that could run amok and get out of control and outmaneuver us to do things because all it's doing is what what we've programmed and and given it parameters to do. It doesn't have the capacity to now take that and say, all right, well, if I do it this way, the humans will, it's it's not even remotely doing any sort of thinking like that. And so I am much more concerned for today, not about robot or you know, AIs taking over or running amok and running out of control, because I think that's quite a ways in the future. Now, I, you know, I'd, I'd say it's at least 10 years, probably 30, 40 years, maybe centuries. It may, it may not even be possible to make that sort of AI. Learn not to bet against humanity. We tend to be pretty good at stuff, but I'm just not worried about that because that's not the kind of AIs we're developing right now. One more follow-up on the kind of doomsday type of questions that come up. Uh, I remember uh, watching an original episode of Star Trek, uh, Leonard Nimoy and uh, Captain Kirk, um, Bill Shatner. I I remember there were two planets uh, where they were at war with each other. And rather than shooting weapons, they would do it on computer and the loser would then have to go and execute so many people of its of its own. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this is interesting. Um, <clears throat> do you foresee that uh, that military weaponry 
that this will revolutionize the weapons that we use? Uh, is that a far in your mind far away, or have you given that uh, much reflection? I think my assessment of that is that whatever an AI is capable of doing, it tends to do better than humans can do it. If for no other reason that because it just never makes mistakes. Uh, you know, it just, it doesn't get tired. It doesn't say, oh, let's go. You know, it, it it's just, it's methodical. It's kind of got that robotic machine type aspect to it. And so even if we can outthink it, the the mechanics of what it will do will be better. And so when you're developing, you know, when you're doing war, the idea is to get the advantage. The inherent, I mean, inherent in that idea of, okay, we're going to carry out simulations and we're just, there's got to be some sort of mutual agreement there of what, what they're going to do. And I just don't see that playing out. If we could, if we could have found the mutual agreement, why go execute the people? Why? I mean, we're, we're in a whole different class of, of war there, if you will. But I guarantee you, if we use AI to develop weapons and use those AIs to execute the uh, use of the weapons, it's going to be more destructive than where we are now. Uh, I have never seen a place where we have gone backwards in the destructive capabilities of our weapons or in our use of them. So <laughs> over to Joe. Yeah. Uh, a final question for you, at least for me. Jeff, related to what we're talking about right now, I came across a statement recently, I think it was put out by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, you may be familiar with it, mm -hmm. but I liked it, I thought it was a really good statement, I'm sure you would sign on to something like that, but the, the question is this, um, where should Christians uh, put themselves in this entire discussion, I guess you could have the extreme of, I'm just going to throw my hands in the air and let it play out, or I'm going to be on the cutting edge. I'm going to be involved in the decision-making. What encouragement, what exhortation would you have for Christians in technological development? I think there's there's two aspects. I don't think there's a single Christian response because I think there are people who are capable of using the cutting-edge technology and have the maturity and the, the knowledge and the wisdom to use it well. And there are other people, I, I, I just, I'm a pretty technologically adept person, a pretty bright person. I also find myself sucked into my phone, scrolling through stuff that's just time wasting time and time again. So I'm, I know there's areas where I'm susceptible. And so I think each person, each, each person, each family needs to have that discussion of what can we do, what builds our relationships and what hinders. And in that discussion, it needs to not just be a, well, this is where we're going to stay. It's like, there's, we've got to live in this world. So if if everybody's using cell phones, I, I probably don't get the option of just saying, well, we're not going to use cell phones because then I'm going to be moved out of the world and I'm not going to be able to have any influence on in what's going on. So I have to say, if yes, I, I'm going to struggle with cell phones, how do I mature to the place to where I can use cell phones to where they're not destructive or you know whatever the technology is? So each each Christian or each person in each, and I think it's probably more more family than it is even as an individual. How do you? How are we going to? What what sort of? Where can we be in this technology spectrum, where we're using it and we're using it well, and it's not being detrimental to the relationships, and the family and the values that we want to want to propagate and we want to share with others. 
And then the church needs to also operate in a way that allows that latitude. Uh, you know, it could be very easily where the, the church could just say, well, we want to engage the technology and you you end up having people who can't interact in a way that's not damn. If the church doesn't have that latitude, there are going to be people who are just going to have struggles and they're not going to have a place to be in the church. You know, and you can do that where you could either be kind of Luddite, where you're not going to use any technology, which leaves out people who have skills, or you can be so advanced in the technology that the people who are going to be damaged don't have a place to be. And so I think the church just needs to have this conversation. I don't, I don't, in all honesty, in the various congregations I've been in, there's just not a lot of these conversations about how do we do this that doesn't come down to, okay, here's the rule that we're going to do, because I don't think a rule is going to account for it because there's so much range in which people can do. So I think as a church, we need to think well about that. I also think we need to say, you know what, this is going to happen. People, whether we think it's good, bad or not, it's going to happen. And we have to ask, how do we engage this technology well? And if we don't engage it, then other people are going to drive the use of it. We need to be involved in what's going on. And so we need to have Christians who are at the cutting edge, who know what's going on and who are programming and working and shaping how it's going. And we need to have people in the church who can support them because that's going to be a pretty tough environment. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take that out and put, it's the same philosophy of another context. We could, as Christians say, you know what? Politics is so corrupt. We're just not going to engage it. Well, by doing that, we've now left the drive, one of the major drivers of how what goes on in our country to people who are no longer or people who are not Christians. Let's get involved in that, but recognize that the person who's a politician, they're living in a tough world. Do they have the support from their church and the acceptance from the church and the understanding there's going to be, they're going to have to do some things that seem kind of shaky or shady at times. Do we have the recognition that we can say, yeah, that's that's part of what we want to do. We want to support and encourage that. That's a challenging thing to do. Uh, mm -hmm. Just even with a family with five kids, I find it hard to hit the, you know, my kids have a pretty wide spectrum of what they can and can't do. Even just within my family, I find that hard. So the church, that's a, that's a little bit of a tall task, but I think the church is definitely up to it if we decide to take it seriously. Yeah, thanks so much for being on Clear Thinking. You are a very sharp guy, and uh, RTB is very fortunate to have you as a staff scholar. So uh, it's it's good to talk with you. Thanks. I have really enjoyed our conversation and just uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, this has been great. We've been talking with RTB astrophysicist Jeff Zwirn, Senior Research Scholar with Reasons to Believe. Uh, Jeff, uh, I think you've written a couple of blogs, at least, on this topic, and I found uh, two names, two titles. One is The First Sentient AI, question mark, and the other is AI Predicts Political Ideology. So people can look uh, on our website, reasons.org. Uh, if you just look under blogs, uh, Jeff's blog uh, uh, down below his name, you'll find uh, his work there and those uh, two uh, blog posts. So thanks again for that. That's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Thanks for listening to it. And we invite you to reach out to Ken via Twitter with any comments or questions. And that's at RTB underscore K samples. We'll be glad to read your comment or question here. 
Make sure to get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples and Jeff Swearing, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.